0: Amen. Amen. As we leave Thanksgiving and prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God read, I actually want to take us straight into my introduction for our sermon text today. It's a bit different. To do so, hold your spot in Acts 6, and please turn with me to Romans 10, Romans 10 in your Bibles. I'll be picking up in verse 8. While you make your way there, Romans 10. I'll start in verse 8 in just a moment uh, before we come to Acts 6 and 7 today. For my introduction, I want to ask us all a question about this morning, specifically right now. Here's the question. Are you listening? Are you listening? A father recently said to me that he finds himself instructing his child almost daily in the truth that God gave us two ears to hear and one mouth to speak. And I'm not belittling any of us this morning as children, but maybe there is a principle in such thought that is needed in our lives. I know my own life, how often I struggle to hear God in the midst of so much noise. How are you doing? Let me ask you all again this morning. Are you listening Our song service so far has held out to us truths to believe and and an invitation into God's presence for us to accept. How are you doing? Did you hear the truth? Accept the invitation? The truth is either you have, you haven't, or you're somewhere in between this morning. So maybe it's maybe not. Maybe not. And up to this point, you're a bit on autopilot here at RBC this morning. Maybe you have ears itching to hear, eyes eager to see, hearts longing to do or bellies longing to do something else, anything else maybe. You wouldn't say it, but maybe this is your heart toward God's word, anything else rather than hear the word of God, to hear it read, to hear it expounded. Maybe you're possibly distracted this morning. You may be there. If we're honest, it's easy to be there at times. It is. Or maybe not. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you are rested and full of praise. You've sung eagerly the things we just sang. You've uh, waited with expectation to hear and to meet God in his word. Some of us may be there. Let this introduction meet you where you are at. Let what I share next improve your present condition. Friends, we are not wasting time. When we dedicate the next 45 minutes to an hour to let the Bible speak to us. And we need to believe that. Do you believe that this morning, church? Are you listening? Guest, friends, this morning, I don't presume to know your background. Maybe this is a first for you, but I wager it's not. We likely have all found ourselves sitting in church before on this same spectrum. Am I listening? Am I eager to hear or am I struggling? This is what we call the Lord's Day as Christians, right? Sunday, a day of worship, a day to hear from God. Then there's the fact that this is a specific Sunday, isn't it? Easter. The expectations of Easter in our culture are still real and felt. So, preachers everywhere will fight harder this Sunday than most. Uh, maybe get up earlier, uh, do things bigger, preach with more passion. And I'm here to tell you, I'm not here to say at all that this is bad. I mean, in earnest, I mean it. I am thankful with that Easter Sunday means better attendance in American churches. But deaf attendance is equal to dead attendance, isn't it? Are you listening? The question remains. And in Romans ten eight, Paul's dealing with the subject of unbelief. He's dealing with the subject of unbelief among the Israelites, his brothers, he calls them. It's a term of endearment he's given them prior to this. These people reject Jesus Christ that he's talking about as he writes to Roman Christians here in the church in Rome. So he's writing to a bunch of people who gather regularly to sing the praises of God in Rome and believe the scriptures. He writes this in verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Quoting from Deuteronomy 30, in the Old Testament here, he tells them, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So those who believe are reminded of how they believed. They confessed Jesus as Lord, trusted his resurrection for them. Paul continues, though, look again. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The beautiful gospel brings unity to diversity and God's riches to his people. But how Paul asks next, right? He asks how, how though, how does that happen? Remember the question this morning, are you listening? Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Okay, now we see something about listening forming right here in this text. We want to believe. We want our loved ones to believe. If we're on the cold, dead, I can't hear right now spectrum, we want to hear. We want to believe. And if we're eager to hear, then the, the promises explode for us. 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Every church preacher, every church member are sent peoples, right? If you are saved, you are sent, he says, or at least that's what God thinks, So now Paul concludes, and look at this. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Stubborn unbelief continues. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now he will go on, but we'll stop there this morning. And why want us to listen to that again for an introduction? Honestly, I kind of want to listen to it again and again and again. Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. My introduction is intentionally long this morning, (laughs) okay? It's not to bore you. I mean it. It's not to bore you. It's to invite you and myself to really hear something this morning in God's Word, strictly hear in God's Word for a longer portion than usual during our preaching time. Because why? Because faith comes from hearing. Faith. It comes from hearing, right? Right? Faith comes from, like it's produced. Faith comes from hearing God. Faith assures us we are loved by God. Faith rids us of our anxiety. Faith excites us to witness. Faith purifies our sexual immoralities. Faith lifts our crushing weight of depressions. Faith challenges and convicts our depravity. Faith shows up and it comes from hearing. It comes from hearing. It comes from hearing. Again, I ask us this morning, are we listening? Listening for the words of Christ. When we hear scripture, we hear the words of Christ. You have heard the words of Christ who created the cosmos so far this morning. Today's text on this glorious Easter Lord's Day has sovereignly worked out in our planning to be two full chapters of the Bible. In other words, you get a lot of chance to listen directly from God here in a moment. In our modern translations, 75 verses, over 1,800 words, and in English language, over 9,500 letters, all communicating God's word to you and me. If we read it thoughtfully and with focus, about 10 minutes of God speaking to us in his word. Faith comes from hearing. Remember that this morning. Pray now that God would grant you faith. Whether that be for the first time, if you have little ears or new ears or hardened ears, let it be be God's words read. So our text is narrative, right? It's storytelling. It is storying. And after I read the text, I'll take just a moment to make sense of it in a systematic fashion. That is, I'll give you just a few points to hang your hat on, okay, to outline in your brain what is happening in this big idea. Preachers do that, right? Preachers help organize the word in the the hearer. That's what good preaching is, we're commanded to do. It's like a mini form of systematic theology, which is just a fancy word for saying putting it in order, right? But preachers don't give faith through the way that they systematize and build points out in sermons. Only God gives faith. The points help. Our text is also full of stories, It's full of stories from the Old Testament. And after I read the text, I will make some quick observations that will match up with those points that you're hanging your hat on, right? And some of those will be based in what we call biblical theology. There'll be this rich story. It enriches and brings to life, helping us illustrate and apply what we do. Preachers do that, right? Good preachers don't just give points of the content. They also synthesize it. They make it applied. It's encouraging, right? But you know what they don't do through that process? Faith. They don't give faith. God gives faith, and he does it through his word. Systematic theology is essential, okay? A preacher's outline is essential. Biblical theology is deeply enriching. Again, think of a preacher helping make sense, but listen to what David Jackman said. But those ways of preaching are not the way God wrote the Bible. And to let them govern the sermon rather than the text of Scripture as written is to end up speaking about the Bible rather than letting the Bible speak. He says one is the words of men, the other the word of God. And in our laps this morning on this Resurrection Sunday drops an opportunity to listen to God directly. Me not in the way. I'll try to get in the way and pray God gives you him more faith after. But for 10 minutes, me and you get to listen as heaven is open and it pours into this room and it accounts for us. What does faithful living look like even unto death? The faith you will encounter in the text of Acts 6 and 7 is the kind that can put steel in the spine of a wayward or struggling Christian, and it can also regenerate a dead person. It's that potent, and it's all right there. Let us agree this morning the Bible speaks. So find your way back to Acts 6 and 7 with me and sit there. You know the page number in the Black Bibles. Parents, encourage your child to listen to God's Word read. Adults, let's do the same. Let's do the same. This is God's word. Thus saith the Lord. Acts 6.1 Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years but I will judge the nation that they serve said God and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place and he gave them the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day and Isaac became the father of Jacob And Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up three, for three months in, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, And seeing one of them being wronged, wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphaim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of God, amen? And may God write it on our hearts that we may not sin against him. May we be warned by it. For God's servant says he's warned by his word. May it make us wise unto salvation, for the scriptures can do so. May he do all those things for us, the hearer. What do we make of a man like Stephen, willing to serve, willing to be seized, willing to speak, willing to be one who dies the death of a saint? How do we begin to emulate such obedience in service ourselves? How do we begin to cultivate such a commitment that if we were seized, we would not fold? How do we have such conviction ourselves when speaking like this brother? And if God would call us to it, how do we have such faith that can endure the pelting of stones? Stephen was a mature man of God that we're going to put under the microscope for just 20 minutes. (laughs) He was a servant. He was seized. He was a speaker. He was a saint. Let's talk about Stephen the servant. Back up to chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 7. It shows us that Stephen, as a man, was a leader and a part of a team of appointed servants in the church there in Jerusalem. There was a team of men dedicated, as the text says, to doing what? To serving the neglected widows among the Hellenists. That is, among the Greek-speaking Jews in the New Testament church at this time. Our church body today has no widow or widower here at RBC, but we will one day. And neglect at any proportion at all within the church is a problem. But to neglect those who are so burdened with the loneliness and the despair that coincides with losing a spouse, to neglect them is a grave issue. The church had a massive administrative issue that they needed to attend to. And so what happens? Point one, Stephen the servant. Stephen the servant and those with him. The service of Stephen and these men, it's a primary need in the church. But it's serving, we learn in this section, the primary task of the church, which is of the teachers of the church to do what? To preach and to pray. The future office of deacon will develop in scripture from the principles that are found in this moment in the church. In 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications that Paul gives for deacons are laid out. Interestingly enough, that's the man Saul who they laid their coats at in this text. He will go on to write what a a man of God who serves the church looks like. So think of Stephen in this text and think that he's dignified. He's not double-tongued. He's not addicted to much wine. He's not a man who's greedy for dishonest gain. He holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is Stephen, the servant. It's the profile of him and the other men accordingly. Our text reports him to be a man of good reputation, that he's full of the spirit and of wisdom, it said. It said he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. What does service to another like this produce in the lives of those around them? We'll look at verse seven. If there's anything to learn about the true servant Stephen, it's to see that according to verse seven, he was one of many being used by God to bring what? An increase of God's word. Verse 7 says, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. It is assumed that the issue with the widow is, is taken care of. And look what God had planned. So much more. People seeking this kind of selflessness are drawn to consider the preaching of the apostles. If you want to understand Stephen as a servant, believe him to be one that wanted to be so invisible in his service that the visible word of Christ being preached would be made known to people, and it did. If his life ended with anything happy, it was that he decided to serve even at the expense of his own life, right? And this is an inseparable way forward for me and you in the church today. So we're going to leave this first point, but if you want to leave it with an application, let this be the way you understand the church must move forward and that you personally must move forward. Okay, the, inseparably, uh, the inseparable thing the church must do missionally is it must preach while others serve. It has to. It has to. Preach the gospel and serve in the midst of it. The more you serve, the more the gospel's preached, the more it's increasing. Stephen, the servant, he wasn't just a servant, though, he was also a man willing to be seized. And that's point two. Look at 8 through 15, the rest of that chapter. So it's, it's not for the sake of alliteration that I, that I refer to him as, as Stephen the Seized, right? Though I am using all S's. That's, that's, a, that's that systematic thing I was telling you about, right? It's the Baptist in me. But the point, the text explicitly translates the word seized for the moment that he's arrested. Other translations decide to say caught him or grabbed him, dragged him. There's a malicious roughness in view in the way Stephen is treated. Why such violence? Why such violence in the text? Well, the persecutors in view in this section, they're helpful context for us for all future opposition to the gospel in the book of Acts and beyond. So whether it's pagan Romans or Egyptians or the most devout sects of the Jewish faith, the gospel is an offense to non-believers. It's an offense it is offensive. Stephen is himself a Hellenist, okay? We've already said a Greek-speaking Jew. Notice the other six were as well in their naming. And these persecutors that come here in 8 through 15, interestingly enough, are also Hellenistic Jews, all those places that are in your Bible there and and that that are mentioned, Alexandrians and Cyrenians and Cilicians and Asia, these are all people outside of Jerusalem that have the Hellenistic background themselves. Stephen's own brothers are persecuting here, is the idea. They're offended. In other words, his own people are the ones instigating the masses with false charges against him. But note Stephen. Stephen the servant is Stephen the sees because Stephen believes as we all should, that Jesus meant it when he said he would bring unity through the gospel to both Jew and Greek, to every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is chiefly in view in Stephen. Therefore, he will not back down. He goes to his arrest boldly. This bold teaching that he gives when he's dragged before the council, he faces the most serious charges a Jew could face in those days. These men know it. He knows it. His charges are blasphemy against God, speaking against and blaspheming the laws of Moses, and speaking against the temple system. He knows these warrant the death penalty. And I want you to, for a minute, if you could put yourself in Stephen's shoes, then your heart should race. Now, I'm sure it did as I read the text. I can't read that text and it not race. But if you'll just, for a minute, put yourself in his shoes, your heart may begin to race as you really think about what this means. He has broken high treason in their eyes. He is Benedict Arnold. He is the turner of of the whole issue that they all believe to be preserving them. He's an enemy of the state. And And upon him is the, I'm sure, the heart beating. If you put yourself there, you would feel that. These are false accusations. Luke makes it known, doesn't he? I mean, as Luke describes them, it's very clear. These are false accusations. They are stirring up lies. But you know what? It doesn't change the fact that the ones who are doing it believe it, and they possess the power over Stephen. He faces banishment, possible imprisonment, and maybe even execution. And yet in his seizure, what does he do? He goes willingly. <laughs> he has accepted the call of Christ, and, and you know, famously, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a man who accepts the call of Christ, it's a call to come and die. It's a call to come and die. Stephen steps up. Now, take your shoes off before we, you know, and and realize and exegete with me verse 15, because in verse 15, at the end of this section, it says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Luke wants you as the reader to both let your heart palpitate as you think, what if I was Stephen? But then let's finish this where it needs to be. Put yourself not in David's position as you sling the stone to Goliath. Put yourself in the people Israel's feet as they stand trembling. What's going to happen? Because when they look at Stephen, his accusers and those witnessing, what did they see? They see the face of an angel. This is not trite language. We treat angels tritely, little babies that shoot things, you know, and like they look cute on statues. This is not trite. This is severity. Stephen's peace in this moment, his hope in this moment, his trust in God in this moment is severe. It's severe. It glows like the face of Moses who was hidden in the cleft of the rock and only saw the backside of God's glory. Stephen is standing in the face of persecutors with potential death and he seems unscathed. What is the explanation for this? Well, there's really no application needed. The text shows us such a peace in God results in speech, right? So it's like, how do we understand one who stands there before the face of death and looks like an angel? Keep reading, (laughs) right? Keep reading because the text goes on and it shows us Stephen the speaker. So we've seen Stephen the servant. We understand Stephen the seized, but look at this speaker. The speech of Stephen stands alone, doesn't it? In power and in authority and in clarity and in beauty. Just read it again and again and again. It'll serve your soul. Remember, are you listening? Remember that question at the beginning of our sermon? It is the longest sermon, the longest speech recorded in Acts. is right here in in chapter 7. And we will be aided to see some parts of it quickly. So first, Stephen's defense includes a short invitation first. Look at verse 1 there. What emerges as, as new in the book of Acts here as we study his words is that Stephen's teaching, it begins to excel Peter and the apostles in this moment. Okay, In this speech, we begin to see God's gospel plan to reach the nations beyond Jerusalem. It, it is not that the apostles have missed anything, but that God is sovereignly using this Greek-speaking Jew to stand up and say, from a Greek-speaking portion of the first church, to, he's trying to get him to, he's using him to do what? To show his heart for the nations. So, this invitation, which is tiny, this is the tiniest section, right? It's an honest one, though. Listen, when the last stone falls after this speech of, and, and the stoning is over, a wave of persecution is going to come upon the Christians that are, that are here. And it's going to scatter them to the ends of the earth where they're going to go and they're going to preach the gospel. They're going to go and hold out the same invitation that Stephen does. God has always loved and called the sinner, not the righteous. That's what they're going to go share and preach. And Jew alike is going to hate it if they don't repent and trust Jesus as Savior. More death and more blood is coming. But man, look at the invitation. First, he gives an honest, short invitation. Second, he discusses Old Testament characters. Notice he talked about Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. This is verses 2 through 43. It's a massive section of him talking. But consider briefly with me how Stephen selected and selectively tells the story. Notice in the text, where did God God appear to Abraham and to Joseph and to Moses? Okay, he notes it's in the mess of pagan Mesopotamia that God comes to Abraham. It's not that God called him out and then met him. God met him and told him to go out in the mess of his pagan world. Stephen brings that up. Notice he brings up, rejected by his brothers, the Jews, God appears to Joseph. Where? In pagan Egypt, of all places. The bottom of a pit, the bottom of a prison, the bottom of a pagan society rises him up to the top. What's God doing? He's willing to reach into that to make his point known. Stephen wants them to see this. What about Moses? Is it 40-year-old Moses who's there with all the people ready to be a deliverer? No, he's rejected by them. And it's only out there in the wilderness, in the wilderness where the fiery bush appears that God makes himself known. Stephen is saying this for a reason. Look at all of the places where you thought God would meet and here was God and here were you, right? So listen to the one who comes. He is selective. What about this? How did the people of God treat the prophets? How did they treat Joseph and Moses? He says here, they were jealous of Joseph, so therefore they sold him into slavery. On multiple accounts in the section on Moses, he shows the rejection of Moses by the Hebrews in Egypt. And even after the miracle of the Exodus, what does he pick up on? He picks up on the story where Moses is beholding God's finger, writing the Ten Commandments. And where are God's people? Rejecting him. Lusting after Egypt. They want that. Give us those gods. Don't give us Moses. We don't know anything about this Moses. What's Stephen doing? He's selective here. If it was not clear in verses 2 through 41, the first time he decides to quote scripture is in verse 43, Acts 5, 20, or excuse me, he quotes Amos 5, and that's verse 25 through 27. So if those those allusions from story were not enough, he explicitly quotes Amos, and as you heard it read, Amos was prophesying against what? Israel's idolatry that led to exile. It would be worth your time to study how he quotes it. But for our time's sake together this morning, let me summarize its content and purpose. That first quote that you see in Acts 7 there, that quote essentially answers the charge against Stephen that he is blaspheming the law of Moses. By showing these men that the evil spirit of idolatry that led the people in Amos' time to exile for them, it's present right now. And it's present right now in them. Do you see the boldness now? Stephen's saying, you are the descendants of that remnant, but you are not free from that error. Just as they reject God, just like those uh, exiled idolaters did, so do you. Ouch. Now, do you see why they're red behind the ears at this point? Their ears are peaked, their faces flush. If that weren't enough, thirdly, in his his work here, he he contrasts the tabernacle and the temple. So he picks up in verse 44 through 50. Consider uh, Stephen's comparisons here. Okay, God worked miracles for Israel, protected and loved them. God led them and drove out their enemies before them. All the while, during that time, God's house, his presence made known, was a tent and a tabernacle. It wasn't the illustrious temple that stands in Herod's day that they see around them. It was this tabernacle, this temporary tent. Sure, it was nice. It followed exactly the codes of law of, that God had said, use your best things to make it. But the point is, it was this temporary thing. Elegant and impressive, but mobile and given to wear. It moved among Pagans right? I mean, he's making the point that it moved into pagan lands and and around them either, either judged them through conquer or converted them through proselytization. Like the point was what? Here's God working. Now contrast that. Contrast what he's sharing about the temple now with at this moment in the text. You see, the temple mount is more glorious in this moment than even when Solomon had built it. Notice what Stephen said to them. It was was David who desired, Solomon who did it. That temple had, by our reading now, has been destroyed. And now it's been reconstructed by Herod. And Herod wanting to please his people he was ruling over has made it more glorious than it has ever been. The temple is the biggest and the best it's ever been on the earth. And what does Stephen do? He shares a second quote with them from the word of God. He quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. He shows that the gold, that the sacrifices they offer, that the amazing works of these men, he's basically saying are like dung considered, that they have missed Jesus in it. I mean, when he quotes there and says, heaven is God's throne, the earth is his footstool, what kind of house would you build for me? Do I not own all these things? God is saying, did my hand not make everything that you've put together? And so Stephen, knowing his audience, he knows what keeps them in blind, stubborn, angry, violent unbelief is their worship of this system they've created, their ability to attain God, right, to get to him because they offer these sacrifices and they do these things. Fourth, and finally, he gives an exhortation to the leaders in 51 and 53, It's worth reading again. Now that we've pointed out these things to see the conclusion again. Now he tells them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. Sound like Abraham? (laughs) And ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It rings in their head as eventually the righteous one, the righteous one. That that's the climax of the passage about to come. But we know he's trying to show them. Look at your rejection. God was raising up Joseph. You rejected him. God was raising up Moses. You rejected him. God was raising up Amos. He points your idolatry out. God gave you Isaiah. Isaiah said, You'd worship me through these false things and you call it faith. And you've rejected it all. He keeps going. Are they killed? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who is the righteous one in the text? Notice, Stephen never even meant There's this difference in Peter, who's all about Jesus, explicitly answering, right? And this is Stephen now, never mentioning Jesus' name, but calling him the righteous one. It's significant. He has held back, while also not holding back, right? But he's held back the reality of they have missed, One thing they've missed. One thing, one person, one God man, one who came and fulfilled all of the things that they reject. And if it wasn't, it's not just they killed him; they killed those who announced beforehand. You've betrayed. You've murdered. Stephen is playing now. Your fathers killed all those who have come before Jesus, making you ready for him. And just like them, you killed the righteous one. Now. One with the face of an angel is delivering the truth to them, and he's doing it even unto death. Look at our last point as we close. Stephen the saint. Stephen the saint is stoned to death in this passage. We've got that clearly and at the, and, and it is at this point that Luke introduces us to Saul, okay the, the murderer uh, Saul approves of his death so the stoning is simple. They, they're so angry, they rush at him. You know, when children don't like to hear what, what they want to hear, they, they cover their ears like this, right? They stop their ears and they don't want to hear it. That's what these men do. With the opportunity to believe, they reject it. They stop their ears and they rush at Stephen and they drag him out and they stone him outside the city. They pick up stones, and one at a time, they hit him, and they hit him until eventually he died. Now, I don't know if Saul is too young to participate or if he's still a student at this point. The commentators disagree, but the point is he was there, and if he could have cast a stone, he would have. But instead, he served them because you can't throw stones with jackets on, right? So to ensure that they can get the greatest velocity with the greatest rage that they have, they shuck their coats off, and they throw them at the feet of this Pharisee, this young one named Saul. And Luke is trying to chronologize, introduce to us one that God will use. uh, So he introduces him here. But we then see that all this results for our story to see Stephen's a saint. But why saint? And why am I using that word? Well, I want to take a moment and steal back from the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. If I'm just being frank. What it means to be saintly Okay, Stephen is saint-like for one reason alone in this, in this section that we're closing, this is what we're closing with today. Stephen can serve us in no other way and no other way is needed than this. He is a saint because he was willing to witness even unto death. He was, even, he was willing to witness even unto death. His death is serving us. The most saintly thing one can do with their life is to witness to the one person alone that can help others, and that's Jesus. So Stephen, this dear brother, this first Christian martyr, saw the onslaught of of the men that came after him. There they were, rushing him with stones. They throw him in the middle, finally freed of their hands. He stands there. They're rushing at him with these stones to begin this execution. And if it's me and you, I think what we would do is we would look to the left or right and think about running away, possibly. Or we would look to the men and try to just convince them one more time to stop. But look what the saint, Stephen, does. He looks up. He looks up. He didn't look forward to rush them with violence. He didn't look left or right. He looked up into heaven, and there he saw Jesus himself. But make note in your text, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is standing in the text to receive him. Now, i got to point out, the book of Hebrews labors, if you've read it, to make the point that Jesus is a high priest who dies for us and rises again, and we believe that. But it labors the point that he does not stand. So in the book of Hebrews, this Jesus, who's a high priest, he doesn't stand like the other priest in Hebrew is pointing out. The priests forever were always busy. What were they doing? They were taking animals and making sacrifices every day. Once a year, year after year, the main sacrifice of atonement. They're constantly standing and working. And the author of Hebrews shows up and he writes and he tells Christians, don't you know Jesus doesn't stand? He sits. This high priest sits at the right hand of God. Why? Because the author is saying, hey, because he's completed it. His sacrifice is once for all. And now he sits. Why? Because the work is done. It is finished. God has accepted him as the Lamb of God. So in the book of Hebrews, it's this really laboring point that Jesus sits. It's an amazing truth. So is the Bible contradicting itself? We need to ask, why is he standing here? Well, listen, it's not a contradiction. There's one person that is the ultimate defense of Stephen. You see, 1 John says, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate means lawyer. These men have opened up the earthly judgment trial of Stephen. God has already declared in the trial of heaven that it is done. And when they would bring their accusations to kill Stephen, he does not look at them. He looks up. God, give me the verdict. And who is there? That great lawyer. The one who will sit for Stephen's atonement. That's already happened. He's believed. And it's counted to him as righteousness. Now, who comes to his defense? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he stands up. He says, let them do what they do. You're mine. And this assures Stephen down to his toes that God is for him and not against him. Then therefore, who can stand? right? Who can come against him when God is for him? In the courts of men, he's condemned with stones. In the court of heaven, he's cleared of all charge and received by the judge of life himself. Luke shows the real guilt of the murderers right? The murderer's place is on earth with blood and stones, but he shows us that standing is the Savior to receive his servant in heaven above. One scholar shows amazing parallels to Stephen and Jesus. Have you considered that both Jesus and Stephen appear in a trial-like setting? Both suffer the testimony of false witnesses, people who stand and accuse them wrongly. Both mention the destruction of the temple. They both do. Both Jesus and Stephen speak about the temple that is made with hands on earth in some fashion. Both of them get charged with blasphemy. Both are asked directly by the high priest to speak for themselves. Both commit their spirits to God at their death. And both of them ask God to forgive those who are killing them. That's what's obvious about Stephen as a saint. And and to that we all say, yeah, that's true. But you know what we really need to see is the most saintly thing? The difference. We should note, even though it's obvious, both die. Stephen and Jesus both die, don't they? Both get laid in a tomb. Both have people lamenting for them for days afterwards. Both experience the understanding of life was there and then it's gone and then there's no more. But one stone at a time which would have been an awful way to perish, parallels in some ways crucifixion. All those stones turned into one stone laid over the tomb of these men. But you know what I'm about to say. You know what I'm about to say the difference between Stephen and Jesus is, right? <laughs> Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. He rose again. rose again. It's amazing. The Greek word martyr is witness. So martes. That's where we get the word martyr, uh, witness. We get it from the, that word. And our word martyr is just directly. And, it, and it's been said so many times that it's kind of become moth-eaten, and I hate that, but it is so true. The blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seat of the church. And, and, and what's amazing about the resurrection, the greatest, of, the greatest thing about Stephen the saint is the same thing that is going to be great about me and you. We will all get laid in the same grave as him. We all will. But we do it with this hope, with this expectation. We serve, we're willing to be seized, we speak for Jesus, and we're willing to be stoned and laid in the grave because our Lord got out of it. It is beautifully simple. God will sow the seed of Stephen deep into the heart right now, and he will not raise it up until the last day. And in the meantime, he will allow that seed as it dies into itself and becomes an example, he will allow that to glorify his name in an incredible way. Men that see through their own gritted teeth, coats laid at their feet, and watch a man bleed his last, offer forgiveness, will come to know Christ. I mean, God will in turn do much more, won't he? Man, death swallows Stephen It's in an honorable way. It's in a respectable way. It's in a bold and courageous way. He is a glorious example to us of how to meet death, but he still meets it. And he doesn't beat it, and Jesus does. The good news of this text, the great saintly example of Stephen gets our eyes to heaven, to behold the reason for the celebration today. (laughs) You know, it's well with the soul of believers because Jesus Christ, the greatest martyr, the greater Stephen, he has truly witnessed for us in heaven. He is our advocate. He is our lawyer. He has taken our sins upon him. When you sing this morning, sing heartily, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It is well. It is well. Is it well with your soul today? I pray it is. I pray you have listened. I pray that if you know know not that it can be, believe today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this uh, servant who was seized, who spoke and who was stoned, all to just get your eyes on the one who beat the grave. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing and celebrate the Lord's Supper today. You rose, Jesus, and... We're sorry that we're so fickle that we need reminders about it, but we're thankful for them, God. Father, it seems like every day when the sun goes into its grave and it gets up the next morning, we're supposed to be, we're being told over and over again, like a strong man that runs the circuit, like the bride, uh, the bridegroom who comes out after his wedding night, Jesus, you will crack the dawn again. You are risen and you will come back. Indeed, we can sing that it is well with our soul. So God, if every sea billow and everything that would ever try to steal our faith, if it, anything that would come upon us, help us to see that you're the author who made the waves, that you hold us steady. It is your ways that bring us nigh. You bring us to the shore. Even through great trial and suffering and difficulty, God, we can say it as well. Let us, let us sit with, uh, with you, Jesus, in hope. Let us see you standing in our defense when we fail. God, help us to be like Stephen and help us to be a people That the more stones that fill our body, the more our lives are are reminded of the great love with which you loved us. God, it's amazing that you could transform such pain into such glory. We're here today asking you to do it again. Do it with us here and respond. Do it for this week. Do it as we go. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you first loved us in this way. Help us to sing to one another now these psalms and hymns and these spiritual songs. Help us to do it in obedience to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.